You're listening to. And hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today for another great author interview. On this episode, we're talking to Grace Kashim, um, the author of The No Family, and that's No N-O-H, a new K-drama-inspired coming-of-age story about a girl who finds out that she is a long-lost relative to one of the richest families in Korea. Yes, it's kind of like a modern day Cinderella story in a way. Yeah. Um, Rira, as our resident expert in all things um, Korean wave, um, what did you think of the book? I had a lot of fun reading it. Um, I'm not the biggest K-drama connoisseur, but I definitely saw inspirations from, <laughs> uh, you know, from my mental catalog of K-dramas. Um, yeah, but it was like a very nice, relaxing read, in my opinion, overall. Yeah, I had a lot of fun, too. And we had a great conversation with Grace, um, talking about her time with her writing group, The Kim Chingus, as well as her inspirations for the book and her thoughts on writing a Korean-American diaspora story. So, yeah, let's get to it. Here is our interview with Grace K. Shem. And we're here with Grace K. Shim, the author of The No Family. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Grace. Hi, thank you for having me. So I know you grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, just like your protagonist, Chloe, um, so what was that like as an Asian American? Um, you know, yeah, I was born in St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, until I was 16 years old, I lived there. And for a greater part of my youth, I didn't, I didn't actually, you know, obviously I didn't know anything differently. So I thought um, life is great. And then um, I think at middle school, when everything starts to happen, <laughs> like awareness and, you know, just the awkwardness and um, self-awareness, but also like awareness of others um, was happening. That was also the time that my parents brilliantly chose to switch schools on me. <laughs> so that was great timing as always. Um, but you know what? It was, it was bound to happen. So let it all just happen at the same time, the awkwardness. Um, and I think that was the first time I just realized like, Hey, I don't, I don't fit into every single scenario here. Um, and at that time I had been going to Korea in the summers and that was kind of where I was culture, my cultural, um, influence or, you know, my hair, my ties to my heritage were. Um, and so it was very compartmentalized in that way where I would see Koreans in Korea and then I would have my life here in America and they were very separate. Um, and so I think it wasn't until then that I truly felt like, okay, wait, I'm, I, I'm a fish out of water here, even though this is the only place I've, I've known and lived in. Um, and I, I really petitioned hard to leave. Um, and that's when I went to boarding school. Oh, wow. You went to boarding school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you so lived the dream dramatic. of so many middle schoolers. <laughs> Is it? I, I feel like people's idea of boarding school is either reform school or like this like 
prestigious, like, um, you know, uh, fast track academic to, you know, elite, elite boarding school, but mine was neither. So (laughs) it's a little misrepresented there. Yeah. Uh, so we were told me as we covered like a lot of the recent releases that you are a part of a writing group called the Kim Chingus. Yes. Um, and I feel like this on this podcast, we are slowly collecting all of you in our interviews. And so I'm glad we have I love one Pokemons, more. Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> we're not Pokemons. Yes, we are people. I love it. So can you talk a little bit about being a part of that group and how that's helped you um, get this book out? Absolutely. Yeah, we when we started, I think what's really special about our um, friend group is that when we started, we truly did not and nobody, I think we all had the same, we started off at the same place. We had this glimmer of hope of wanting to be aspiring writers. We were all Korean. Um, I always miss, you know, I always catch myself by saying we're all Korean American. We're not Korean American because there's Korean Canadian and Korean New Zealand. Um, but you know, we are diaspora and, um, second generations of, um, we're not the immigrants ourselves. Our parents are the immigrants. So we found a lot of, um, similarities in our path. And we happened to just meet right at that time where we were all starting to take off. And, um, and what I mean by take off is that I think we were probably all dabbling with writing beforehand, but at that moment we had all gotten into uh, this um, mentorship program called author mentor match, um, at within a span of a year of each other. So it was all happening within the same time. And then we all got connected because, um, we were all aspiring Korean writers and um, the chemistry just worked right away. And I think what was special about that was that we found solace in the process together. And then we also critiqued each other and um, kind of figured it out as we went along together. Um, and that really made our bond special and unique because as you know, one by one, everyone was starting to get agented and then they were starting to get book deals. And um, even though mine is not the last to debut, I certainly was the last of the group to have um, an agent and a book deal. So I um, I always credit these women because they, even though we all started at the same place, um, watching them, each one, one at a time, like they weren't, they weren't happening at the same time. It really truly did happen like one and then another and then another. Um, and then watching that all happen was both, you know, as inspiring, but also, you know, obviously it made me feel kind of like, um, you know, no one wants to be last. Right. (laughs) Um, so there was a little bit of that where I was like, well, maybe I don't belong here. Um, and I think writers just go through that in general, but as I saw them one by one, I think, even though I felt um, discouraged at times in my process. And um, it it never took away, though, from seeing their journey and seeing their rise, just having a front row seat to that every step of the way. It was just so inspiring to know that, like, I have seen it, and I know it can happen, and I know I can do it. And I think that was the voice in my head going on as I was feeling, um, you know, as, as the rejections wear on you, you wonder if you can do it anymore, that those, those women are the ones that really encouraged me, inspired me to keep at it. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, creating art sometimes is kind of a, a, a lonely experience. So having people around you that not only support you, but can also relate to you on like a cultural level, on a, like a personal level, I think that's really important, especially as we 
are still a minority in like Asian American stories, Korean American stories are still Canadian Canadian stories are still a minority in in the greater you know media landscape. Um, I think that's really mm-hmm. cool. I want to see the future biopic of the Kim Chingus. Like I want to see that <laughs> story in the future. <laughs> you make that happen. <laughs> we will all be there for it. <laughs> I like you mentioned. Like no one wants to be last, and mm-hmm. don't tell that to Susan because Susan uh, Susan Lee is the author of Soulmates, everyone. And uh, she is the last of the Kim Chingus to have her book out, which is um, coming out this fall. But uh, you're an older writer. And I just want to ask, like, what was that experience like for you? Like, um, I know you're a full-time mom and that can be difficult as well to carve out writing time. So can you just tell us a little bit about your writing process? Yeah, sure. Um, Yes. And Susan, just to clarify, is debuting last of our Kim Chingu groups uh, in our Kim Chingu group. But um, her book deal did happen before mine. So I I still want to clarify. I feel like I still I I sort of snuck in there, you know, right before her. But really, truly, um, I was the last one. Um, And Susan's going to do great anyways in September. But I yeah, I, I think that, you know, when I talk about when we first started, how we all wondered, could this really happen for us? And it was like the whole, we're minorities in this um, publishing industry that is very selective. And um, could we do this, you know, without having um, a longstanding background in writing? Um, And for me personally, part of the, um, part of my challenges was my age too. I was thinking, can I do this at my age? Um, we're all different age ranged in the kimchi goose. And, um, I think being later, later, starting this later in life, um, with three young kids was really, it posed a challenge for me in a different way than it might have for the other kimchi goose. Um, and candidly speaking, like, you know, when I was really letting it get to me, um, letting, letting all the rejections and the fact that I was the last man standing when I was kind of, um, feeling low, I was speaking with, um, I I remember this very clearly when I was talking to Jessica Kim, Jessica and I had been friends long before writing. So we have a very different relationship outside of writing. And, um, I was speaking very candidly to her about how frustrating it was to constantly feel like everybody was, you know, zooming past me. And I was just this slow turtle, (laughs) like that was never going to make it to the finish line. So it was very frustrating for me. And I didn't want it to take away from my happy, my, um, just, you know, that my, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I was happy for my friends. Truly I was. Um, but it didn't take away from my own sadness. So I, when I was talking to her, she said to me, she said, you have three kids that are under the age of seven, you know, like if anyone, I mean, like if it was going to take longer for anyone, it was you. And if it takes longer, it's fine. You know? And I think I had to hear it from somebody else because finding the time was truly, truly a challenge. And it wasn't just that I didn't have time. I didn't have the energy either at the end of the day. Um, because I think a stay at home mom, the job is not, you know, something that can't be done. It's just that it's a job that never ends. I felt like, and it's not like I'm the only mom to ever write, but I think when this is your full-time job, there's a whole host of like, um, responsibility, 
that you feel um, because you're not bringing in a financial income, you feel like your job needs to expand to be more than just making sure these kids are fed and taken care of and are living. Um, so I think there was a lot of balance, um, balancing act that I had to do. Um, and a lot of the times the negative voices were coming from my own head. So I did, it did play a lot with me, but I do like that about writing how, um, since then I have been paying attention to a lot of those posts of, you know, how old they are when they're um, debuting. (laughs) And like, I find a lot of solace in that, by the way, because writing truly is something that can happen at any age. So, yeah. I mean, Toni Morrison started writing like way into her late 30s. Uh, I know that like her first novel, The Bluest Eye, didn't get published until she was like 40. Um, And it's, you know, it can be disheartening when you see a lot of debut authors who are still in college. And yes, I too (laughs) ignore all the debut authors who are under 20. Yeah. I mean, good for them. I'm so happy and proud for them. But it's like, I mean, and a part of me feels like, can I hang with these 20 something year olds? But you know what? Writing is so awesome. Yeah, writing is so awesome like that. You don't have to have stamina. You don't have to have youth. You just have to want to do it. Yeah. And I feel like it's also a sign of just changing times, right? Like now we have kids Mm. who can pursue what they want to do at the age of 18, which is, I think, something that a lot of us you know, older Asian diaspora um, creatives had to struggle with, right? For at least until until now, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's another good point. So uh, let's get into your book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the summary? Sure. The short pitch is that um, The No Family is about a teenage girl who takes a 23andMe test and discovers that she's related to the secret family that live in Seoul, Korea. And not only are they secret, they are extremely rich. Um, it's what Koreans will refer to as chebors, which is like um, high society group of elite um, rich people in Korea. So she is invited to go visit them and learn all about her um, father's side of the family, which she knew nothing about. One of the things I was surprised about uh, reading the book was how quickly Chloe decided to fly to Seoul after finding out that she has extended family. I think it was like within the first chat that she has <laughs> with her long lost cousin, uh, Jin Young. And you had to establish Chloe and her mother's relationship in such a short span of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you want to convey to the readers before Chloe went on this journey to the other side of the world, literally? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, oh, that's a good point. Um, you know, I did want that to be the story, her in Korea meeting these people. So it did have to happen um, very quickly, as you as you mentioned. Um, I really hoped, and I can, I've been doing... Um, let me see how I want to approach this question. Um, I was hoping, and something that my editor and I were very, um, very focused on establishing, like you mentioned very quickly early on, was what is going to prompt her to want to do that? Um, someone to move, to go to across the world to see these virtual strangers, right? Um, Because even though they are related, they they have been estranged their entire life. So she really doesn't know these people. Um, I think we needed to show, and I hope I did in the first couple chapters, that she is 
uh, stuck. She, she doesn't, she feels like she's not going anywhere. Her friends are leaving her. Her, her mom is not around, is not going to be around um, any more either than she was in the past um, because of college. And not only that, she's not even going to a college that she uh, got accepted to and wanted to go to. Um, so there's a lot of things that are not happening for Chloe. And so f- we had to establish that very clearly. And I'm not, you know, um, in a very short amount of time. And I, I, I think it was pretty much all listed in the first chapter. Um, so it, it was very clear that that was something that we um, even addressed maybe in the second or third chapter when the mom was just kind of like, are you really going to see these people? And I think Chloe just asked her, are you really not going to tell me about them? And I think she just had to feel like enough is enough. I'm just going to go see for myself. Um, and the reason why I hesitated with this question was because I think, I think maybe to readers, it's not as it's, it's more shocking, um, to make that jump right away. But, um, because I had a personal connection with, um, a DNA test myself where we discovered, um, relatives that we didn't know that we had. And, um, that, which is actually the inspiration for the story. Um, and when that happened, they went, these people who reached out to us, um, went from being complete strangers that we were very wary of. And then once we found our genetic connection, instantly became family. And it was this weird light switch that went off in just from one moment to the next. And um, I can't even describe how dramatic that feeling is. And for me, when people say how unbelievable it is for Chloe to do this, I I always draw back to my own experience and think it's actually not like if your feet were in her shoes, like I bet you it wouldn't have been that big of a stretch or a leap to feel. Um, and I'm not really quite sure if I could um, even describe it uh, unless you go through it yourself. Um, but it is a very real feeling of you'll do anything for these people that you just discovered are related to you just from that mere DNA um, connection that you have. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about just the, the want for connection, especially for diaspora peoples, right? Because we are disconnected from our parents, our grandparents' homelands. And a lot of times our parents and grandparents don't talk about their homelands, don't talk about where they came from. And so we're stuck in this world where, yeah, if something's going to offer us the answers that we need to look, especially in, you know, let's face it, in this country where we're not even sure we belong all the time, even though we may be American or citizens. Like, I think that's totally very relatable as like a diaspora like person. Yeah. And her, um, her trust and faith in these family members that she'd never met before that she knew that I think she had this like an immediate uh, sense that she'd be safe in their hands um, is a kind of a testament to her own mother and her own upbringing, because, you know, that's her sense of family. Family is someone that you should trust and love. And I think that automatically transferred to um, her father's side of the family who she's never met before. Um, So I think the naiveness comes from her own only experience um, with her own mom. Yeah. I mean, she's also 18 years old. Like (laughs) it makes sense that she would make this uh, very impulsive decision and, (laughs) 
this is how I knew that I was old because I was like siding with the mom being like, are you really going to fly across the world by yourself I know. in a country that you don't speak the language? And, as, and like as an adult, I was like, I don't trust these super rich people. None of them are trustworthy. <laughs> I've watched too many documentaries, you know, <laughs> Probably, like, yeah. like about like about like lost family extorting, uh, you know, like other people. I was just like, this this seems like a red flag. But obviously, 18 <laughs> year old who really wants a connection with her uh, father who has just been missing in her life. I could totally understand why she would mm-hmm. make this decision, especially since she is stuck, like you said, uh, in in a place where she's not moving and everybody mm-hmm. seems to be moving ahead and she can have this adventure this one adventure that seems to be once in a lifetime uh, experience so totally understood uh the reason why she decided to make that impulsive decision um <laughs> even though you didn't so, agree with it <laughs> yeah. no i totally <laughs> did not agree with it but then i think about all of the times when I was 18 or in my mm. early 20s and I would hang out with absolute strangers and I'm just like, that wasn't safe at all, but <laughs> it's okay. We're still like, like You're still I'm still alive. alive. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those people are my closest friends now. So it just goes to show that some of these spontaneous adventures do amount to something. Sure. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the no family, they're Chebol, like you said, the top 1% of Korea. They come from uh, generational wealth. And K-dramas like to portray them pretty dramatically. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of politics and there's a lot of uh, yelling and <laughs> saying like, you can't be with this person. They're oh, a different yeah. class. You would think that this is Downton Abbey or some kind of like Victorian show. Uh, by just like the level of dramatics. Uh, but like I said, K-dramas are fictional. Uh, what other sources did you use to look into mm. the glitzy Chebol life? Mm. So, you know, I think, I think I may have mentioned this <laughs> in front of you at the launch, but um, that my, um, the Chebol family is loosely, and I must emphasize loosely, um, emphasis, um, based off of my aunt, who is, as I've learned, she's not Chebol, but she's called what, what they refer to as semi-Chebol, which is she is very rich um, and does have businesses um, that are very um, extreme, doing extremely well in Korea that are sort of in that in-between tier. She's not one of those big five companies or whatever, Samsung, LG, but she has her own. um, She's doing well anyways. um, So they actually, that family, and and you mentioned a little, Martin, about families in Korea being very disjoint, or not Korea, Asian families can be disjointed. Like generations don't speak with generations. And, um, you know, even though they're close, they might not have this close familial connection. And my family was in Korea is kind of like that, where um, they live very separate lives. Um, So one aunt was not very doing very well, but this other aunt was doing extremely well. And um, she is one of those people, though, that like, I think at one point in time, every single relative of ours on that side worked, worked for her, you know, it's kind of one of those things. Um, and, and they almost always ended up not, not good. (laughs) Those relationships were severed after that, um, unfortunately, but, um, I did get a glimpse, you know, we have a very good relationship with them and, um, my aunt is still alive. Um, 
And I have a very good relationship with her. But growing up, you know, I said, I mentioned I go to Korea and I would spend time with one aunt and then I would spend time with this aunt as well. And, and the, it just so starkly different from each other. And they grazed upon that li- that lifestyle of Chebor. Um, and they did have a lot of high society friends. Um, and in the No family, Harmony is very superstitious. And that is something I took from my own experience with my aunt. She is extremely, extremely superstitious, does consult um, a fortune teller, um, and she is very um, controlling of her kids who they marry, um, our names. Um, you know, she she knew that her daughter was going to get married at 32. So she didn't worry when she was like a spinster. You know, she didn't worry that she'd be a spinster when she was 27 and unmarried. So, you know, there's a lot of superstition that is was involved in that um, in that uh, from that family and that the influence of their um, day-to-day lives were heavily influenced by that. And I think it was because she felt like she had a lot. At first, I think it was because she obviously wanted to be successful and then later uh, was heavily reliant on that fortune teller to protect her um, fortune, right? And um, all of their lifestyle um, of how they shopped um, how they lived, what restaurants they ate at. Um, that was all inspired from just seeing how they lived. Um, and um, the Mr. Kim character is an actual, It's he's a driver that my aunt had that, um, that used to be responsible for driving my sister and I around in Korea when we were there. So originally the Mr. Kim character was an older father figure type guy who was really kind and really cared after us almost like like he was our own family member and then it all got changed in the editorial process as you know yeah i was wondering i was like kinkisa <laughs> is very young 23 years old i was like damn like he <laughs> he got like the prime like the best job ever for a lot of people uh at such a young age and i was just like wow so lucky Um, But I'm glad that you brought up the fortune teller because for a lot of readers, it might seem silly because Seoul Mm. is so modernized and Mm -hmm. so technologically advanced. Um, And I feel like a lot of non-Koreans have this perception of Korea that it's like everything is everything is like a K-drama. Everything is skincare and Mm. beautiful people and just a lot of modern technology. Uh, And I just want to ask like your personal thoughts on like the global popularity Mm. of Korean media and how do you think, like how do you feel about non-Koreans seeming to like become experts in Korean Mm. culture? Ooh, that's, yeah, that is a whole topic. Um, I, and I'll, I'll be very candid. Um, I I know that my book is a K-drama inspired. It, that's been, what it's being pitched as. That's the angle. It's a K-drama inspired book. And I will have to say, um, I did not want to write this story. Um, I did not. This is not the type of books that I write. I am not a K-drama lover. I do like them, um, but I spend most of my time watching Downton Abbey and PBS. You know, like it's my, my that's my preferred um you know, so I, I felt a bit of a fraud, a bit, 
And I will, I mean, even a bit of a sellout in a way for writing a book that was K-drama inspired. Um, After having queried another novel that was completely different and not getting an agent um, with that one, I absolutely had struggled with thinking with what, you know, with writing the story because every process didn't feel like I was selling out in some way. But it was my sister that actually told me that she said, it's, you're not, you're writing the story that's right in front of you and you can't ignore that. So I think for that reason alone, I wrote this story. Um, and it, cause I couldn't help but see the parallels of K-dramas with what was going on in my real life and how, how much fun I could have and where I could take it. But having said that and seeing the book now in the world, I, I worried and I still worry that I am perpetuating that um, lens of Korea is just one thing. We're either K-pop or K-drama or K-beauty, like you said. Um, and I also worry that only people who are interested in those things are going to read this book um, when I really clearly wanted it to be about a, a story about a family you know, like a, a girl's sense of belonging and um, a coming of age story. But I I couldn't help but notice that that's how it was being marketed. And I, and I worried, I do worry about representation and how I'm representing not just Koreans, but Korean Americans and Korean uh, popularity in the U.S. And it is, it's a constant struggle. I think that's the burden of, um, of being a Korean diaspora writer. Um, and I hope I, so my book too is a completely total standalone book. And I, I, I think it's good. A part of me was wondering if I should have written a dual, you know, like not a duology, a a companion book, because it does kind of end in a cliffhanger. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm not because I really just want to set that aside. I'm not going to just write one type of book and we are not this kind of, we're not just one thing kind of thing, but um, I do think it's a struggle. And I think it's a struggle knowing that that is kind of our only, it was the thing that I thought that would get me published too. It was like, you know, the only angle that I thought it was like my in and now that I'm here, I'm being very careful that this is not the only thing that I'm doing because, as you mentioned, you know, like that's not what all you know, like spend a day in Korea and you'll find that we're more than just that. Um, and so, I think there is dangers of misrepresenting um, the Korean culture this way. Yeah, I mean, as a non-Korean American or Canadian, I guess, um, I really enjoyed the story, and not specifically like I'm on record as not being like a huge k-drama fan despite producing like a podcast where people watch k-dramas but um for me it was really the story about this girl who is looking for family and i think i connected with her want to be more connected with her homeland and also the relationship with her mother like i spent the last half of the book just wondering like what's going on with that are they going to see eye to eye and i think that's kind of the heart of this story the k-drama-esque aspects are all kind of in a way, her projections and kind of her like idealization of like this life that she's only seen on the screen. Mm-hmm. And then when the reality hits her, I think that's really important too. And I don't know. I think you did a good job balancing. And I think the heart of this is still a very Asian diaspora story, which I really, really appreciated. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I hope that people take the, have that takeaway too. Yeah. I, I'm sure they did. 
because as a Korean American, like I definitely saw like pieces of like mm-hmm. my own experience being a kyopo. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you guys who are not Korean, kyopo means you know you're part of the diaspora outside of Korea, mm-hmm. but it also means foreigner, and mm-hmm. it's it's a really heavy term. It's a really like heavy mantle to carry totally. uh, because. They know that you're a foreigner, but they also expect you to know all of the Korean etiquettes Mm -hmm. and cultural rules. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in your book was uh, the dinner scene where Chloe meets her aunt Mm -hmm. and her uh, female cousin for the first time. And Chloe is criticized for not speaking Korean or and like not knowing proper etiquette. So I just wanted to ask, like, are there any unwritten rules you've been surprised to learn as a Korean American? Um, you mean Korean etiquette rules? Like, yeah, like Korean etiquette. Yeah. Um, you know, I am constantly um, surprised by Korean etiquette um, because that's not my <laughs> day to day. But I did, I did insert some of my most shocking ones. You know, like the chopsticks. Um, I did not realize that there was a way, a correct way or a better way, I guess, of using them. I just thought, okay, if you could put the, get the food to your mouth without dropping it, then you're good. But not crossing the chopsticks are very important. I was, I would admonish for that by my uncle one time. And, um, I think someone did say the further apart your chopsticks are at the end, the better looking your husband is going to be or something along those lines. And just was shocking that that was, uh, (laughs) it just knows no end those, um, sayings. Um, I remember also my father was lying down on the ground, um, just reading a newspaper on the ground, um, as you do in Korea, (laughs) this is when we were visiting and, you know, how apartments in Korea are not that very big, are not big. So I was going from one room to the other and I stepped across him I I got an earful of that. You know, you're not supposed to step over your elders like that. Um, and so there's there's plenty that I do wrong. <laughs> um, handing in your homework assignment because I did the Yonsei, um English language oh, program. Okay, yeah, I mean. But I know. did not last very long. <laughs> so um, a lot in- of- <laughs> That's so funny. What do you mean you didn't last long? Did you drop out or did you not graduate? I, I mentioned this in our interview with Abigail Hingwen, uh, the author of Love Bo Taipei. And I actually got really sick. I was sick before oh. I went to Korea. Like my mom did not warn me that I was going to Korea, by the way, until like the day before <gasps> my flight. And it was my first oh my flight alone oh ever. And I was 12 years old. So... So I could understand, like, Grace's, like, predicament a little bit. I was like, oh, my God, I've never been to Korea by myself, and I don't speak the language, like, super well. And um, my my slight cold became very, very bad to a point where the organizers were like, oh, no, she needs to go home because uh, she might have to be hospitalized. So my grandparents picked me up within, like, the second week. Oh my gosh. The camp in Yonsei. Yeah. So (laughs) different experience for most people. Totally, totally. But I didn't realize they did it that young. They did, yeah. Oh my gosh. It was like from I I think I was like the youngest age bracket. So it was like from 12 to like 17, Uh, 18. So I went when I was 18, and it was very much like you said earlier in the interview, 
you make terrible choices at 18. So I made plenty of terrible choices. Like I went to a foreign country. Sometimes I wonder how my parents let me go, but you know, (laughs) at least it was with the promise of learning Korean language. Right. Um, and I will have to say in the very beginning of the class, they did say that, um, more than half of you are not going to graduate, meaning complete the course. Like it's not, obviously it's not like you're not going to get into college if you don't finish, but they were just stating the facts. Um, there is an attendance policy that it, if you don't, if you don't, you know, if you miss too many classes, then you don't pass the class. But I happily did. I still have my diploma just because I know that it was not an easy feat to do um, <laughs> from their message the first day that I got there. But that was in in that class I did learn as well. When we handed in our assignments, we would always just kind of go like this. And the teachers were so upset about that. And they had to school us the first day. And they said, you need to hand us your assignments with two hands. And I, I, that's, that really, um, I still remember that very much to this day. So I kind of, I almost feel that kind of respect, um, to my kids' teachers today, like you need to respect your teachers. And it, it really did carry over, but I was really shocked at that, age, you know, at every, it doesn't matter what age I was learning something new about the culture. You know what I mean? Like every year that I go there, I'll learn something new. And it's very shocking to me because that's not my everyday lived experience, but you said it correctly where it's like, they know you're a foreigner. They can, well, they can spot me out right away because A, I don't look Korean and B, I don't, I'm just too dark. I think that's what it is. I just don't look Korean. Um, and they spot me out right away, but then they also, they do, they, they, they know I'm a foreigner, but they also kind of get on my case for not knowing enough Korean stuff. So I think that frustrates me. I the, the term kyopo has a lot of mixed emotions for me because I'm like, okay, I'm not, you know, in America, I go day to day knowing that I don't, you know, that I get confused as a foreigner here. But then now I'm here in Korea and I'm getting the same action here. So it's like, where do I fit in? So it's kind of frustrating, but you said it the best. Yeah, they expect you to know everything. They they expect you to know everything. Yeah. (laughs) Like I went to Korean school, uh, like after school, Korean school uh, for like 10 years. And like it was run like a legit Korean school where military style you had like different (laughs) subjects not just like Korean language courses you had like science and history taught in Korean and one of the things that I was really weirded out by was every time when the teacher came in everyone had to stand up and then you Uh had like a representative being like like stand up salute and I was like what is happening this is so (laughs) weird like, because you don't do that in American nope. schools, but that is just like what they do in Korea. So that was one thing. I just wanted to share one unwritten rule that I didn't know. They do that in um, Taiwan too. Is that like a holdover from like the Japanese school it's system? Like Asian thing. Yeah. I think it's a respect. I mean, I get it. They're they're teaching the younger generations. It is an important job. I do, when I think about it that way, I kind of sometimes think that maybe in the in the US we don't have as much respect or regard for our teachers here, like it's, it's reverse. Like we need to do things more like that. I don't know. So this is going to be a pretty deep question. Uh, so Harmony says at one point in the novel, sacrifice is the measure of a family strength. And sacrifice is a recurring theme in your book. It's also a recurring theme in Asian American lives. I think mm. our parents never forget to tell us how much they sacrificed for us to pursue our dreams and whatnot. Uh, What are your thoughts on sacrifice, quote unquote, measuring love? 
So I think that was very um, critical for Haimoni to say that because at that generation, that is how they showed their love. I mean, I know my aunt loves me, but she's never going to hug me. <laughs> you know, it's never shown in um, a physical way. Um, it's never a hug. It's never, um, it's not even kind words, you know, it's not even done through words. And I, and I think it is a generational thing where, um, the emotions were just never showed. Um, and they're so, but they do have a lot of love and I don't want that to be, um, kind of misrepresented that love is expressed in only one way, um, which is, the way that we're used to seeing it today because people are just more freely open to expressing um, how they feel. Um, but uh, in that, in that generation, there's absolutely, I mean, it feels very cold. And I, I think that how many loves fiercely, it's just that you're not going to see it in the way that we're used to. And her sacrifice, I mean, if I could write a whole book on her, I, I would. Um, but her sacrifice in my head um, stemmed from, and I think about this often because really Hymeny's generation is my parents' generation. So it's a lot closer to me than it would be like my, my grandparents. Um, and as an adult, I've learned a lot about what my parents have sacrificed um, during that era growing up. And their it was the wartime, you know, their, their things were different for them. And, um, so when I think about how many sacrifice, what she did for the family, I think everything she has done to build up her fortune has been for her. So her family doesn't ever have to suffer the way she did or, or even work as hard as she did. Um, and, and I think that it comes off, it might come off as cold and unfeeling, but Everything she does is for the family. So I, you know, I, I hoped that it might shed light on different people's way of expressing how they love somebody. I think the expression of love is different between parent and child and, and grandparent mm. and grandchild. I, what I've noticed is that Korean grandparents, they are very doting on their grandchildren, mm. always feeding them and always like, yeah, like kind of spoiling them because they had to be so strict with their own children because of the time that they were growing up. Um, I know for a fact that like my grandmother, she was very doting on me. Mm. Um, but to my father and his siblings, it was very much like you need to be at the top of your class. You need to mm -hmm. be able to do all of these things because, um, because of like the survival of the mm -hmm. next generation depends on your success. So there mm -hmm. was like a lot of pressure, but obviously because I am like second generation and I live in America, uh, a lot of that pressure has been alleviated. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, I could totally understand. Yeah, that kind of parenting totally won't turn into generational cyclical trauma, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, one. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I, as a parent, I'm seeing that too, and I'm like, 
hold on, <laughs> you know, like you're not making it any easier. Like, it's like you had these standards for me growing up, but now it's my kids and I'm trying to hold these standards for them. And you're like totally upending it by <laughs> spoiling them with whatever you want to give them. But it, it just feels like a double standard, but yeah, I get it. I think it's now their chance to do the things that they never got to do um, for their kids. Uh, so it wouldn't be an authentic book about Seoul, in my opinion, if there weren't good food descriptions. Koreans love to eat. Uh, do you have a favorite street oh food? Koreans definitely do love to eat. Um, the street food, um, I had this like, and I think they became really popular with the rise of K-dramas. But I was, when I was in Korea for Yonsei, it was many moons ago, um, I think it was in the nineties. <laughs> Gosh, I'm really dating myself here. Um, but night it was probably like 19 summer of 1997. I went and that was when I first saw the corn dog with the crinkle cut fries, you know, deep fried with that. And I just, I had to have it every time I saw it. I really wanted it. it smelled good. It looked good. And I thought it was so weird that corn dog, which is sort of kind of like you synonymous with American food, right? Had suddenly become this Korean street food. And I, I really got really fascinated by that because I was like, this is kind of like the corn dog, but so much better. It was really delicious. And it was kind of the type that makes your stomach kind of gurgle after like, okay, this is so bad for you. Um, but that was something that I, I always loved to eat when I was there. Um, and the fried chicken. I mean, they just do fried stuff so good. Uh, like it makes that crisp. It's just always so crispy. Um, and I didn't know, realize until recently it was because they double fried everything, which totally makes sense now. And then I have to have it with the pickle, the moo, the pickled radish, the white cubes. Yeah, that's my favorite. I was so happy Korean fried chicken made its way to America because <laughs> uh, like you said, like it's double fried. It's so good. There's so much flavor. And uh, I remember like when I was in Korea, like for like when I was like younger, I didn't really know what like Korean fried chicken was. I was like, is that KFC? Like legit KFC, the, the chain. Right. But <laughs> it's so good. But I learned. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Grace, for uh <laughs> being here with us and entertaining all of my weird questions. <laughs> no, none of them were weird. Um, I hope I was coherent. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like my thoughts are more cohesive than other days. And I hope I was good enough. <laughs> no, it was great. And um, congratulations on the launch of your book. And um, yeah, I hope to um, hear more about your next book um, sometime soon. I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing what's next for you. Thank you guys so much. And that was Grace K. Shim. Her book, The No Family, is out now on booksellers everywhere, including our Books and Boba online bookshop. So um, if you want to check out her book or other books written by Asian and Asian American authors uh, while also supporting the Books and Boba podcast, um, please um, check it out. So, yeah, um, we're coming up towards the end of the month. Um, so, Rira, can you remind us what we're reading for the month of May 2022? Right. So we are reading... Portrait of a Thief by Grace D. Lee. What do you know? Another Grace. <laughs> um, and it's a heist novel. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this book at the end of the month. Um, it's shaping up to be a fun ride. 
Um, I love that this particular high school is made up of just a bunch of Asian American um, overachievers uh, because uh, what better way to utilize our years of overachieving than to rob colonizers of the stuff they stole from us, right? I mean, is it stealing when we're, you know, taking back what's rightfully right. ours, reclaiming? It depends who you ask, though. <laughs> and it's actually inspired by a true story. So that's a little bit yeah. of a fun fact <laughs> there. Uh, but we'll be discussing the book in a few weeks. Um, if you have finished the book ahead of time, please let us know your thoughts on our Goodreads forum. We always like to include um, comments and feedback from our listeners in our discussion episodes when possible. So, yeah, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thanks to Grace K. Shim for joining us. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.
Hi, I'm Quincy Cho. And I'm Kaycon Apu. And we host Marvel Makeup. It's a podcast where I teach Quincy a little about Marvel. And I teach Kay a little bit about makeup. Join us as we watch and talk about every movie and TV show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm mostly watching for the first time. And join us as we apply makeup stuff to our faces, which I'm using for the first time. Marvel Makeup is part of the Potluck Podcast Collective, and you can find new episodes every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can catch video versions of Marvel Makeup on our YouTube channel. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And please give us five stars so our Asian moms will understand why we buy so much electronic equipment. Because it's for this podcast, Marvel Makeup.